All right, if you have a Bible, please open up to the book of Nehemiah, chapter 1. Now, uh, when we decided to do this, uh, originally today was going to be Jonah, and then next week was going to be Nehemiah. We kind of changed it around because, frankly, I didn't look at the schedule. Um, So, um, Ryan's like, Jonah! I'm like, no, Nehemiah! And he's like, not according to the paper! And I'm like, because I don't look. Um, so we're doing Nehemiah today, but you know what? That was God's providence at a lot of levels. And, and I love the story of Nehemiah. Now, a number of people did come to me this week and they said, the Sunday school story of Nehemiah, um, is that a Sunday school story? Like, you know, like, is that what we teach kids? And I'm like, I learned Nehemiah in my Sunday school, but they're like, well, we didn't in ours. So this is a great opportunity to learn what I think should be a standard Sunday school story. It takes 13 chapters to tell it, but that's all right. So... So we are going to be looking at one of the best stories. I think of one of the most interesting and profound characters in all of the Old Testament. Now, what's great about this story is it links to last week's story, right? So last week, we learned about Daniel. So Daniel's this young man, teenager, gets just ripped from his home, forced to serve a bunch of pagan kings under pagan rules and laws, and he's faithful to God. He does whatever God wants him to do. He just keeps seeking God. He keeps honoring God. He keeps doing exactly what God calls him to, because Israel had been detached from their homeland and sent into exile because of their sin. Right? Because Israel wasn't faithful to God, because Israel wasn't following the one true God. God says, in my love and in my grace to restore you as a people, I will take you and send you in exile. That is my judgment. But the judgment of God, the spanking that God brings to Israel, that is designed to reclaim them, to call them back to what really matters. And if you want to know what really matters to God when it comes to Israel... It's that he had this master plan for why they exist. They existed as a nation for the sake of the nations, right? Go back to what God told Abraham way back in Genesis when we learned his story, right? God says, Abraham, I'm going to raise you up and I'm going to use you to bless all the nations. The whole world will know of my good news, my gospel, my purposes, and my person through you. You are the ambassador. The nation that was risen out of you will go and be a nation to the nations. That's the purpose of Israel. Eventually, Israel gets into the promised land. They build a city, all right, Jerusalem, a city for all the cities of the world, a city that's to be a light on a hill, a beacon of truth and of worship. That's what Jerusalem's supposed to be. And then the Israelites themselves are to be a people for all peoples. So a nation for the nations, a city for the cities, a people for all peoples. But Israel has forsaken that, and God has brought judgment taking them to a far-off land to get their attention. To cause their hearts to be stirred again to God. So they come back to God, and they again want to be a people for the peoples, a city for the cities, a nation for the nations. That's the intention. That takes us up to this particular point in chapter 1, verse 1 where 141 years has transpired since that event. The event of God wiping out the city, wiping out the nation and wiping out the people and sending them into exile. 141 years has passed. And that brings us to the stroke of the pen of Nehemiah when he writes in verse 1, these are the memoirs of Nehemiah. Here's what's cool about this. 
this is him writing his life story. He's just busting out his, his parchment and pen and saying, here's what I've gone through. Here's what I've done. Here's what I've experienced. See, women have diaries. Men have memoirs, right? Right? Like, I don't know if a dude that's like, dude, I was writing in my diary. I'm like, dude, I'm going to punch you in the face. Call it a memoir, right? Women diet. Men have eating regiments. We're weird about that, I know. But women craft. Men are craftsmen. We're sensitive about these words, all right? So the, he, he starts to write these memoirs. Here's my life. Here's my circumstances. Here's what I faced. And so it says, in late autumn, in the month of Kilzev, in the 12th year of King Artaxerxes' reign, I was at the fortress of Susa. Now, that doesn't mean a lot to us. But if you understand this, King Artaxerxes is the fifth king of the Persians. And so lots of people have been in control over 141 years. Lots of countries have even been in control over the course of that time. And now he is there, and you're going to see he serves the king. Right? He's serving this pagan ruler just like Daniel did, just like other people have, having to do that honoring God, and he's doing it at the fortress of Susa. This is the same location that years earlier Daniel served his king. It's the same place, if you've ever read the story of Esther, where she married one of the kings and served as queen. So this is a very popular place here in Susa. But again, you've got to put it back into the context of what's going on here. It's, it's, it's still a foreign land. It's not the homeland of Israel. And so he's serving in this location, but then his brother comes and visits with some other men who all came from Judah. And so he says, I asked them about the Jews who had returned from captivity and how things were going in Jerusalem. So quick history lesson. Uh, remember Daniel last week, the last real king that he was serving was Cyrus. And Cyrus actually told the Jews, you know what, it's been a long time. The Babylonians wiped you out. You can go back to Jerusalem. You can go back and build the city. Why don't you do that? That was like 60 plus years before Daniel, or before Nehemiah's writing here. right? So a long time ago, the king said, you can go back. And then five years before the scene, there was a man named Ezra who went to Artaxerxes and said, can I go back to Jerusalem and begin to build the temple? And Artaxerxes said, yeah, that's fine. You can go back, everything else. So people have been going back for a long time, right? It was destroyed 140 years ago. They've been going back for the last 60 plus years, doing something, trying to build. And so all Nehemiah is asking his brother is, hey man, how's the progress? It's been a long time. There's been a lot of opportunities to do a lot of different stuff. How are things going? And so in verse three, it says, they said to me, things are not going well. For those who return to the province of Judah, they are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem has been torn down and the gates have been destroyed by fire. Right? So basically he says, it looks like Detroit after the Pistons win the championship. It's not, nothing good. Doesn't look, it's a burned out wreck. All right? That's what it looks like. And he says, and when I heard this, I sat down and I wept. In fact, for days I mourned and fasted and prayed to the God of heaven. Now, I want you to just punch that in for just a minute. Because that is the weirdest response. That is so weird. It would be like if I came up here today and I said, President Lincoln was shot. And you all just started sobbing. He's dead. <laughs> yeah, like a long time ago. Because that's this scene, 
right? 141 years ago, the city was destroyed. The walls were crumbled. Uh, Everything was burned. It's like, this is not new news. This is not new news to Nehemiah. Nehemiah knows the conditions. He knows for the last 60 years it hasn't been good. Why is he suddenly so overwhelmed with emotion over old news? Here's why. Because God has given him a new heart. That's the difference. Old news, but with a new heart, brings this just overwhelming emotion. In fact, in chapter 2, he's going to say at one point, he's going to say to himself, I had not told anyone about the plans that God had put in my heart for Jerusalem. So back in this scene, he's serving the king, he's there in Susa, and God gives him this heart that breaks, just aches for the city. Aches for something that the city needs. Or more importantly, aches for what the purpose of the city originally was. That's why he's so broken. That's why he's so crushed. When he hears this, it's like God says, that's the thing I've made you for. I've built you for this purpose. And so it overwhelms Nehemiah. He just, he's just suddenly just stricken with all of this welling up emotion in his life and in times and, and seasons for this. And he's just, God, how could this happen? How could this be? That's the power of a new heart. See, sometimes when you dwell in the old news long enough, it's just old news. It doesn't stir you. As I was even looking at that this week, I was thinking about how we all live in old news all the time. We have some new news. We have good news, in fact, but we spend so much time in the old news. The old news being uh, the world is broken. The old news being the world is sinful. The old news being that the world without Jesus is going to hell. That's old news. And sometimes being reminded of the old news does not break our heart. Sometimes just knowing the old news is, oh, I know that. People are going to hell. I know that. Well, the gospel can save them. Yeah, I know that. But our heart is not gripped by that reality. And I'm looking at this and I'm reading Nehemiah and my prayer just suddenly was like, God, give me that new heart. So that when I hear old news, my heart breaks. When I think about people that don't know Jesus, that my heart would break. When I think about places that don't have good, solid, biblical churches, my heart would break. Right? That I would ache inside and be like, I want that for them. I want the heart of Nehemiah. See, it's, it's a rare thing to see this. But, but when you see it, it it's infectious. And, in fact, here a couple of weeks ago, last week, we did this ordination for Pastor Scott. But a couple of weeks ago was the test for his ordination. And, 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 you know, it was a couple of hours, lots of quizzing. And, and then one of the last questions we asked was if there was one thing about Redemption Church that, that you could see uh, expanded and, and, and us become, what would be that one thing? And, 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 and he made, maybe made out two or three words before he just started weeping. He just started weeping, and I'm not trying to put Scott on the spot, but Scott's on the spot. Um, he starts weeping, and he couldn't even catch his breath. You know, and he kept, as a real man does, you know, just this, that pose, give me a minute. And when he could finally kind of get the air going again, it was that we would 
ache for lost people. Because he aches for lost people. He's got the heart of Nehemiah. You start talking to Scott about lost people, he tears up. You start talking to the lost about Scott, he gets fired up. He's got that new heart for the old news. By God's grace, he's given us Scott here to give us that heart too. And so I encourage you, man, hang around with Scott. Get some infection going, man. Because, boy, we so desperately need it, not just as a church, but as evangelicals. We're so good at sitting on the sidelines and saying, here's what the problem is. Here's how it's broken. And then God looks and says, yeah, but you're the only ones with the solution. What are you doing? Critics are easy to come by. It takes no effort to be a critic. You don't even have to be bright to be a critic. Right? If you have a mouth, you're equipped. We don't need critics in the world. Jesus didn't leave the church here to criticize the world, but to reach the world. And the heart of Nehemiah is less about building a wall or a city, but more the purpose of that which is God's people joined under God's word with God's gospel for other peoples, other cities, and other nations. That's the purpose. He knows the purpose. When we come together here on Sunday, it's so that God would come, dwell within us, stir our hearts so that we go out onto the mission field and we do what God wants us to do with a new heart. Just like the heart of Nehemiah. That we would become desperate for this disposition. In fact, let me put it in perspective, even where we live, all right? If you take uh, the Pacific Northwest, and, and this was actually a poll done by a non-Christian group. This is, this is just a secular poll. You know, they were doing demographic studies of different areas of the United States. So, the Pacific Northwest, how many people in their poll claim to be Christian? And by that, there's no telling what they define Christian as. So, you know, they call people, it could be anything. It could be Catholic, Protestant, Mormon, Jehovah's Witness, whatever. Just, you know, liberal, conservative, theologically, it doesn't matter. Just how many people in the Northwest claim to be Christians? You say 30%. You're off. 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 They're polling 8%. Now, that freaks you out a little bit. Like, hmm? That's what their polling showed. 8% of people in the Pacific Northwest claim to be Christians. You know what that makes us equal to? Per capita? Mainline China. Right? So you, you just go, well, well the church in China is, is, is so small but potent. And I go, yeah, well, that's kind of like the church in the Pacific Northwest, except maybe not as potent. Because you take all of that into account, and you go, okay, so then how many of those churches in the Pacific Northwest are... Um, conservative, Bible teaching, Jesus is God, Trinity's true, gospel's the only way. Versus how many are going to be like, Jesus is good philosopher. Only way? I don't want to be arrogant. Right? So we're talking about a pretty small percentage, which is why as a church we say our, our, our goal is developing missional theologians. Because truth is close-handed for us. Man, we hold the word of God as supreme. We hold the sovereignty of God as dear. We believe in very conservative ways truth. But boy, we've got to go out as missionaries in our culture because our culture is going to hell 
fast, fast. I mean, our little Northwest culture, you go down to the South, there's cities and towns in the South where every single person in town decided to go to church that day, all the churches could hold them. Imagine if everybody decided to go to church in Seattle in one day. They would fill up super fast and there would be tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands that have no place to go. Because you might think, oh, there's so many churches in town. There's so many places for people to worship God. You know what? Don't get into that myth that you think that's true here. It's not that true. And then more, the churches that, again, really want to honor God and really want to honor the truth and really want to hold to the gospel. Those are fewer still. So we need the heart of Nehemiah. Nehemiah wants to build a church and reach people. You know what we should want to do? Build a church and reach people. The heart of Nehemiah. We should want to build more churches and reach more people. We should want these outposts and outlets of the gospel spread all over the Pacific Northwest. That is within our reachable grasp. We can do that. We certainly send people all over the world, too. We have church planters going out into the world. We want to see the church established and planted, and I'll make a big case for that in a minute. But for now, I focus on the heart of Nehemiah. And if anything, we should pray for this heart. If your prayer on a daily basis isn't, God, may my heart break for the people I work with, go to school with, rub shoulders with, live in my neighborhood, on my cul-de-sac, then make it your prayer. Because it's the most important thing. If you say, I want to be like Jesus, you know what Jesus really wanted to do? The will of his Father, which was to love the world and give himself for it. We should pray that heart, the heart of Nehemiah aching for this. In fact, what leads immediately out of this revelation of his heart is the desire to pray. And so he prays. In fact, in the book of Nehemiah, he's said to have prayed nine different times, or he just references nine different times in which he prays. He was a praying guy. And so he prays for days, months, as we'll see. And look at his prayer. Verse 5. Verse that starts off with who God is. It says, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and unfailing love with those who love him and obey his commandments, listen to my prayer. Look down and see me praying night and day for your people, Israel. This guy's a working guy. He's not a pastor. This guy is not a priest. This guy is not serving in any religious capacity. He is a white-collar guy serving the king, overwhelmed with the lostness of the world and the lostness of Israel. And so he prays, God, our awesome and great God, I need your help. The God who has unfailing love, who holds a covenant of love and law. Man, God, I need you. You're high, you're enthroned, you're above all. I need you. So he focuses first on who God is. From there, he moves into what they did. He says, I confess that we have sinned against you. Yes, even my own family. And I have sinned. We have sinned terribly by not obeying the commands, decrees, and regulations that you gave us through your servant Moses. Now, is Nehemiah technically guilty of what happened 141 years ago? No. But Nehemiah is much like Jesus. He identifies with the sinners, though he's not one who is guilty of that sin. But he identifies, just like Jesus does for us. He says, boy, we've we've blown it. This is what leads to their circumstance. Verse 8, please remember what you told your servant Moses. If you are unfaithful to me, I will scatter you 
among the nations. So Nehemiah doesn't sit back and go, why did this happen to us? He knows why it happened. God made a very clear agreement. He's quoting Deuteronomy right here. And God made a very clear agreement with Israel. He says, you know what? I'm going to put you into this land flowing with milk and honey. It's going to be awesome. But for that awesomeness to continue, you have to obey me and serve me and love me and worship me and delight in me from your heart with a joy and gladness of heart, it says in Deuteronomy 28. So it's like, if you do that, man, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless you immensely. But... If you start to rebel against me, you get lazy regarding me, you don't really want to worship me as much, you don't want to show up to Sabbath, you don't want to do what you're called to do, you want to start bringing on other idols and other gods, I will in love spank you. And I will pry you from this nation, and I will put you into slavery, and it will not go good. So made made this promise way back with Moses. And Israel, of course, rebelled. Countless times rebelled. So God finally gives them a good swat on the butt. This is enough. They're going to be exiled for this season of time. That's what they're all living through. So he says, man, you've only done what you promised to do if we walked away from you. We walked away, so you fulfilled your promise. But God also promises something gracious. He says, but, as your word says, you said, if we return to you and obey your commands and live by them, right, even if... We are exiled to the ends of the earth. You will bring us back to a place that you have chosen for your name to be honored. The people that you redeemed are rescued by your great power and strong hand. They will be your servants. So you get these two promises in tandem. God says, I promise that if you rebel, I will spank you. And I promise that if you repent, I will bring you back. Right? And the spanking is not meant to be cruel or mean. It's loving. If God didn't love Israel, he'd say, just go off the cliff, man. Go thumb on Louise. I don't care. Drive on. But God says, I care enough to spank you, to bring you back so that I can bless you in this way. And what, what I especially love about this promise that is so good uh, is, is the fact that, you know what, um, because God is a redeemer, because God is a forgiver. When we come back to God, you know what he does? He takes whatever you've written on the page and he erases it. Whatever you've chiseled into rock as far as your sins, your mistakes, your guilt, and your grief, he just wipes it away. He says, it's gone. As far as the east is from the west, I do not hold you accountable to that anymore. I completely forgive you. I take away guilt. I take away shame. I take away sin. That is the God I am. So what a refreshing thing. No matter how big we blow it, God says, I will not remember if you repent. I will treat you and elevate you like it was day one. You're back to A+. You know who loves to keep a record of wrong and always bring accusation even after we've repented? The enemy. Satan does it all the time. He goes before God, oh, look what Matt did. Matt did this and this and this. And God says, I know, but you know what? He repented and I forgave him. My son took all of his penalty and shame and guilt, dealt with it all. Satan says, yeah, but, 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 but. Let's keep that record of wrongs. See, that's what the enemy likes to do, but God loves to forgive and purify and cleanse completely. And he does it in the Old Testament with great strength and a mighty hand. What's great for us in the New Testament, it's with great surrender and a pierced hand. It's so complete. 
It's so complete. And so Nehemiah knows this too. He's just praying the Word of God. The Word of God, when prayed, is powerful. In fact, that's one of the things I love about this prayer right here, right? That he's praying according to the revealed will of God. Sometimes we pray and we're like, God, I don't know what your will is. And God says, boy, if you read my word, you'll see a lot of what my will is. And you can pray according to that. And that's what he does. He's just praying according to the word of God. Your word says that you would bless us if we obeyed. You would spank us if we disobeyed. And you would restore us if we repented and came back to you. So, God, I'm praying that that's what will happen then leads into the last part of his prayer about how God can help. He says, Oh Lord, please hear my prayer. Listen to the prayers of those who delight in honoring you, not just duty. Listen to the prayers of those who delight in honoring you, not just being good because it's the right thing to do, not just going to church because it's responsible, but because you want to delight. That's what he's saying. Honor those who delight in you. He says, Please grant me success today by making the king favorable to me. Put into his heart to be kind to me. Now, why does he pray this? Well, very next little section there. In these days, I was the king's cupbearer. So again, white-collar guy, has some power. It's one of those positions where it's honored because you bring the king his cup. It's a dangerous position because basically you're a poison tester. Um, yep, seems fine. Here you go, king. Right? I mean, that's his job. So he's kind of like king security in some ways. But he knows the king is powerful. So he's praying for favor. He prays not only for days, but for weeks. He prays for months. In fact, he prays for over four months. We can even speculate that he prays one day for every year since Jerusalem has fallen. So he might pray up to 141 days. That's why it says in chapter 2, verse 1, early the following spring, during the 12th year of King Artaxerxes' reign, I was serving the king his wine, right? So here, we're going to talk. You might want two of these, all right? So, he says, I had never appeared before, never appeared sad in his presence. So the king asked me, why are you looking so sad? You you don't look sick to me, but you, you certainly must be deeply troubled. And he is deeply troubled because he spent months now praying seeking with this burdened heart for lost people and no church, right? So he's overwhelmed. And God keeps embedding deeper this passion, this new heart, right? So he's just overwhelmed. It's starting to come to the surface. It's coming out in what he does. He's on the job and they're like, wow, you seem distracted. Why are you so distracted? It says, then I was terrified. It's like he realizes, oh, wow, I'm wearing this out, out big time. And the king's noticed. Why would he be terrified? Well, remember when I said Ezra had gone back five years earlier? He started doing some construction, and there was some tension. And King Artaxerxes said, you know what, I don't like this. Cease building anything in Jerusalem. I'm concerned it's going to become a rebellion, so I'm shutting it down by king's decree. So Nehemiah is very aware that King Artaxerxes may not be real pro-rebuild Jerusalem. So as soon as he realizes game's on, he's terrified. And we're all going to go through that. We talk about having that heart to reach people. We're going to have that conversation with somebody, and we're going to be afraid. Some of you might look at people that share their faith a lot, and you're going to think that guy is never afraid to share his faith. He's never nervous. He does it all the time. Can I tell you that's a lie? People are always nervous to share their faith. Always. Don't start thinking it's only going to work well when you're comfortable with it. You're never going to get really comfortable with it. It's always risk. And so even here, there's this risk. He's been praying. He's got a heart, but he's terrified. 
But he can't just pray forever. He's got to pray and then act. And so he acts and so he replies, Long live the king. How can I not be sad? For the city where my ancestors are buried is in ruins and the gates have been destroyed by fire. He just finally puts it out there. Here's the problem. I'm fully in now. I'll tell you what I'm thinking. I don't know where this is going to end, but I'll tell you. He says, and then the king asked, well, how can I help you? I mean, that's got to be a mind blower for Nehemiah. Except for one thing. What did Nehemiah start praying day one? Give me favor in the heart of the king. He prays for months waiting for this day. That's where I go back to even our heart for the world, our heart for the lost, our heart for the church. Um, We should be praying daily because then a day will come. The day will come. And God puts favor in the heart of the king. And so with a prayer to God of heaven, I replied. So a quick prayer. Like, king says, what can I do? And Nehemiah's like, oh, Lord God, please. Uh, let him respond favorably. He says, if, I please, if it pleases the king, and if I have pleased the king, send me to Judah to rebuild the city where my ancestors are buried. And he says, don't just give me permission. But he goes on to say, oh, and if you could give me protection, that would be awesome. And also, if you could give me provisions, that would be wonderful. So he goes all out. Give me the green light. Give me a bunch of supplies. Give me a piece of paper that says, you know what, if somebody picks a fight with me, I can fight back. Give me some other supplies to do that with. Some personnel. And the king says yes. Against all odds, basically overturning his decree, issued five years earlier. He says, yep, let's do it. Let's send you. So he sends him. Nehemiah takes up the opportunity. So in chapter 2, verse 11, it says, so I arrived in Jerusalem. And three days later, I slipped out during the night, taking only a few people with me. I had not told anyone about the plans that God had put into my heart for Jerusalem. He hadn't brought it up. It says, we took no pack animals except the donkey I was riding after dark. I went through the valley gate, past the jackal's well, over the dung gate. That sounds like a delightful city. To inspect the broken walls and burned gates. Then I went to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but my donkey could not get through the rubble. It is a mess. 141 years later, nothing has been touched for the most part. 60 years of allowed to be back doing stuff, nobody's done much. They've come back to the general area, but the city is just derelict. Looks like something after like Hurricane Katrina, nobody's living in it. It's just a wrecked mess. Now he has a survey, he needs a crew. So he goes to all the nobles in verses 17 and 18. And says, you know what, the city's in disgrace, we need to do something about this. And the king has shown me favor, and he gave us a green light. We should rebuild. And so all the people said, yes, let's rebuild. And so they began to do a good work. Like everything is coming together, right? So the king says, yes, Nehemiah has a heart. He goes and does it. They see the problem. He comes up with the solution. They all say, let's build. Nothing is going to get in their way, right? It's all going to be nothing but greased gears. No. That's not how it works. Welcome to church. It says in verse 19, but when Sanballat, Tobiah, and Gershom the Arab heard of our plan, they scoffed contemptuously. What are you doing? Are you rebelling against the king, they ask? See, there's three guys here, but really, this is like a double-barreled shotgun in the hands of Ahmed the terrorist. That's really what these three guys are. 
All right, like like Tobiah and Sanballat, they're peat and repeat. That's what they are. And you're you're going to see them like at different intervals in this book. And here's the most tragic part of Tobiah and Sanballat. These guys actually would claim Yahweh as their God. Right? There, there are those guys from the old era that's, yes, we love and serve God and we have some idols too. So they're Yahwehists, right? But they're Yahwehists with idols. And while sometimes they want to sound like they're on God's team, more importantly, they're on their own team, their own power, their own control, their own whatever. And you know what? There are times, I have had times in my life where Tobias and Sanballat have just rolled in. They wear tweed jackets. They're not cheerful. Right? And, and, and they're like, you know what? Uh, we're, we're, we're pro, but we're more pro what we're pro than pro what you're up to. Right? And you're all going to have it. Everybody's going to have a Tobias. Everybody's going to have a Sambalot that says, we're on the same team. We serve the same God. We love the same Jesus. But then they get in your face all the time to discourage you because they don't like what you do, how you do it, when you did it, why you did it. They, they don't like it. So Nehemiah is going to face that. But he responds to their criticisms. He says, the God of heaven will help us succeed. We, his servants, will start rebuilding this wall. I mean, I love that because there's just resolve. Resolve to do it. Resolve to accomplish it. And, and I love this especially about Nehemiah because, again, all of this says something about his character and his commitment to what God has called him to. Because, again, he could have just kept his day job. Keep serving the king as wine. Imagine if that, that's what your job was. What do you do? I serve wine. Live in a big house, serve wine. That's a comfortable job. Do you really want to go live in a burned-out rubble city and rebuild it with people that are complaining on the outside? And as you will see, people that are going to complain on the inside too. Welcome to church again. I mean, he could have just spent his life living off the king. Instead, he's going to come and do this, and you know what? People are going to live off of him. Man, he chooses the hard way. He could have remained in the seat of power, or he can go to this place where it's going to be nothing but problem after problem. But he sees the big picture. He could have continued to enjoy security, or he'd have to endure instability, which is going to be his life, nothing but instability. And so he shows that he doesn't choose the easy life. He chooses the God-word life. And here's what I will guarantee you this morning. If you say, Jesus, I want to be used by you, Jesus, I want to be changed by you to be usable, then you are inviting a life of pain. Amen. If you go, no, no, if I live for Jesus, that brings prosperity. No, that's called TBN. They don't got it, all right? What I'm saying is if you really want to live for Jesus, really want to be dedicated to Jesus, you're going to experience a life of sacrifice and suffering and pain. You're welcome, all right? Now, there's deep reward in that. Deep reward. But the more you want to live forcefully for Jesus in a climate that resists Jesus, the more there's pain. Sometimes internal, within the church, sometimes external, from the world. But there's pain. And Nehemiah says, all right, I want to do what God wants me to do, so I choose the pain. So he chooses the pain, and they begin to build the wall. In fact, all the way through Nehemiah chapter 3, all you see is them building a wall. What's cool about that, you might even, you might look at your Bible right now and go, that's a lot of names. 
I want you to read them all out loud and get every name right. That's what I want you to do right now. All right. Um, no, you, you know, you're almost going to like skip it. Like, who cares? It's a bunch of names. But here's what it says. Everybody contributed. Everybody was building the wall. Rich, poor, blue collar, white collar, well-educated, not educated at all, young, old, didn't matter. Everybody contributed to building the wall. What's the message for the church? Everybody must contribute to building the wall. Everybody. You've got to figure out what does God want you to do in the church. I mean, I look at this, and I, I couldn't help all week but parallel the story of Nehemiah to the story of Redemption Church. And I'll, I don't say this often because I don't even know how to say it. But I, I, I feel like the heart that God continues to give me is similar to Nehemiah's, where I'm like, I just really feel like God has put in my heart the idea that redemption will be a true powerhouse-type church and will train missionaries and will train theologians people that are passionate for God and we're going to do a lot of damage and see churches planted, just cool stuff. I really sense that. But what it's going to require is all of us to build. All of us to say, I want to be a part. We're going into two services, so it means everybody says, how can I make that happen? We have regroups all over the city and people saying, how can I join up with that? How can I be a part? How can I contribute? I don't know, some of you go, oh man, that's not my thing. Stop it. I'm not a people person. Stop it. Right? I'm too busy. Then free up your schedule. Right? We make time for things that we think are important. Right? And if it's really important, we get over our own insecurities, our own frustrations, because we see the big idea. Right? We, we see what we're shooting for, that heaven and hell depend on it. Eternity hangs in the balance based on the effectiveness and health of the church. So all the more, everybody in this room should say, what can I do? How can I contribute? Where do I build? That's how it should be. And so everybody is building. Everybody is caring, right? And as soon as it gets rolling, what happens? Chapter 4, Sanballat was very angry when he learned that we were building the wall, right? Rebuilding was underway, and he flew into a rage, and he mocked the Jews. He says, do they actually think they can make something of stones from a rubbish heap? And charred ones at that. So the reconstruction project in Jerusalem is basically, hey, I just tore out the whole kitchen. What are you going to use to build it with? What I just tore it out? I tore it out of the kitchen. I'm going to rebuild with the crap. That's what they're rebuilding with. That's all they got, but God is on their side, so that's cool. It says, then Tobiah the Ammonite was standing beside him, and he remarked that stone wall would collapse if even a fox walked across the top of it. What a smart Alec. It's like having Mel Gibson and Alec Baldwin guzzling whiskey and just waiting for trouble here. So, right? So, they're, they're just there to start trash, right? And again, like I said, it doesn't take much to be a critic. It takes a lot to be a contributor. It doesn't take much to complain. Complaint's easy. Right? I, I, can, I can complain just by mumbling. Right? I don't even have to move my lips to complain. Right? That's all it takes. No skill, no effort. To make a difference, that takes skill. That takes effort. So what happens when these guys complain? It says, then I prayed. Hear us, our God, for we are being mocked. May their scoffing fall back on their own heads, and may they themselves become captives in a foreign land. Do not ignore their guilt. Do not blot out their sins, for they have provoked you to anger here in front of the builders. I love this. 
Oh, look at that cheese ball wall that's going to fall down. Hey, God, open up a can. That's what I'm asking. Boom! That's all I'm asking. I love Nehemiah. He's so great. He's going to get better, too. All right, so he is my hero. Okay, so then, finally, verse 6. At last, the wall was completed to half its height around the entire city, for the people had worked with enthusiasm. Right? So they knew. We're all working together. We have a cause. It's an eternal cause, a glorious cause, a worshipful cause, a purposeful cause. So they're all going at it, right? And God, in His miraculous grace, has caused them to get this thing half-built in hardly any time. And you would think, you would think, when critics are standing back, and they're mocking, and they're teasing, and then something supernatural happens in their midst, that their hearts would just break open, and they go, Oh, I guess God's doing this. No, that's not what happens. In fact, here's another heartbreaker. If God shows up big in your presence and does something really huge in front of your critics, you know what it often does? It solidifies the anger of your critics. Because they they, they just can't see it. Because Satan is stimulating their hostilities. So, undeniable presence of God. What do they do in response? It says, but when Sambalot and Tobiah to the north the Arabs to the south, the Ammonites to the east, and the Ashdodites to the west, heard that the work was going ahead and that the gaps of the wall were being repaired. They were furious. So they all made plans to come and fight against Jerusalem and throw us into confusion, right? Just to demoralize us, to break our hearts and cause us to just go, oh, we can't do this, we're too afraid. Right? So they're getting surrounded, right? Just we're going to come down. Worse than that, in verses 11 and 12, their enemies were saying before, uh, to, the, to other Jews, right? right? Our enemies were saying before they know what's happening, we will swoop down on them and kill them and end their work. Says the Jews who live near the enemy came and told us again and again, they will come from all directions and attack us. So they keep going like into the Jewish camps every day, like, oh, uh, we're going to kill you. <laughs> right? Trying to get them to go, let's just not build it. Nehemiah, it's too much. We're surrounded on all sides. We can't make this happen. Which just just, just quit. In fact, it starts to work. Verse 10 says, Then the people of Judah began to complain. The workers are getting tired. And there's so much rubble to be moved. We will never be able to move. Right? I mean, that's what they're doing. Right? So like I said... Fears from without and worries from within. This is what happens when there's external pressure and you choose the road of Jesus, which is the road of pain, and pain starts to come. What is going to be the temptation? I want to quit. And this little thing here is actually a song. In Hebrew, it's a poetic song that they were probably singing while they were working on the wall. If you've ever been with those guys that just don't want to work hard and they complain a lot, so they're carrying their shovel behind them. We're working and it sucks. Right? That's, that's these guys. That's what they're starting to do. And their song would have sounded something like this. Strength is waning, rubble so vast, to build this wall ourselves. No, it will not last. And they would have sing that over and over. Another brick and a wall. Right? That's what they're doing. So, and they're not happy. Right? <laughs> they are very depressed. There, there is no laser show or weed at that party there. All right, so, um, they're just depressed. All right, so, external pressure amplifies weakness. So what does Nehemiah do? Verse 9, we prayed to our God and guarded the city day and night to protect ourselves. I love what he does. First time he prays. Second time he prays up and then he chambers around. That's what he does. 
That's all he does. He says, all right, we're going to take this a little bit different. We're going open carry for Jesus. Put those t-shirts on, all right? Everybody's wearing a shirt. Open carry for Jesus. That's what we're doing here at the wall. That's his plan. So, verse 13, so I placed armed guards behind the lowest parts of the wall in the exposed areas. I stationed the people to stand guard by families armed with swords and spears and bows. Then I looked over the situation. I called together the nobles and the rest of the people, and I said to them, Do not be afraid of the enemy. A. B. Remember the Lord, our great and glorious God. And three, uh, fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. That's incentive. Right? Here's what he's basically saying. Man, we got to guard this thing. All right, grab a weapon. How can I create more incentive? Take your son to work day. All right, um, have your kid next to you. You'll probably fight a little harder. Nothing stiffens the backbone like giving a guy a Glock and his son and an enemy. Right? Nehemiah is brilliant. I, I think child labor laws might mess with him today, but it was brilliant. All right. So it says then I explained to the nobles and the officials and all the people. Right, the work. Is very spread out, and we are separated. So uh, what we're going to do is if somebody attacks the wall at a certain point, blow the horn from that point, and everybody will rush to that place, and our God will fight for us. See, Nehemiah had no problem saying, uh, human responsibility, God's sovereignty. I need to do things, and God's going to do things. And I pray that God does things, as I'm responsible to go and do those things too. That's what he does. And I look at all of that, and I go, man, what's the, what's the big message First of all, is this, what's interesting is, is how he stations everybody where he's got some people just guarding and he's got some people with a sword in one hand and a trowel in the other, right? He says everybody has to kind of be prepared, right? You're ready to battle and you're ready to build. And that's your mindset. You battle and you're built. And here's what I've discovered about life in the church. And I think Nehemiah is starting to see things move in another direction. Up to this point, people have complained. Even in chapter 3, we didn't get into it, but there's people complaining there and they wouldn't work with other guys because boo-hoo, whatever it was, right? So all that stuff. But now he's turning a corner. And the corner that he's turning is the church, the people of God, are at their best when they battle or when they build. Right? When the church battles the enemy battles for the gospel, it's at its best. When the church builds the church for the glory of God, it's at its best. When a church gets lazy and says, it's just about us and we're all going to sit inside, you know what they do? They do battle and they do build. They battle each other and they build resentment and it's useless and the enemy loves it. Right? So what this is saying is, no, we're at our best when we battle the enemy and we build the church. And Nehemiah knows it, so he's sending them to battle and he's sending them to build, just like we're supposed to do. And everybody carries a little bit of the work, a little bit of the weight, and they all carry a weapon, just like us. But he knows that only God can truly build it. And so on October 2nd, the wall was finished, just 52 days after we begun. And when our enemies and all that surrounded heard about it, they were frightened and humiliated. They realized that the work, the work had been done with the help of our God. Right? He gets it. But again, this isn't a building project. It's really not. It's a building project for a deeper purpose. So it's all finished. You go, oh man, he could do this and go home. Nope. Chapter 7, verse 1. It says, After the wall was finished and I had set up the doors and the gates, the gatekeepers, the singers, and the Levites, who were the priests, were all appointed. Ah, here's what he's getting to. His heart, again, was not just to have some, you know, like, big, giant, brick guarding post, and that was it. 
he wants to build a, an experience of worship. In fact, even the commander of the fortress he chose because he was a faithful man who feared God more than most. He's not just looking for the strongest and the bravest. He's looking for the one that fears God the most because he knows the one that fears God the most is going to honor God the most. He fears letting God down. He fears being detached from God. He fears the discipline of God. That is all going to create the health inside the city that Nehemiah is looking for. So the city's built. The religious leadership is appointed. The only problem is, verse 4, at that time the city was large and spacious, but no population. Nobody's there. We built a church. How many people joined? Zero. Right? So he doesn't have that many people. So he comes up with this plan and says, all right, let's do this. Let's go back, look into the archives, look at the genealogy, see who gets different parts of the city, and let's give everybody the city back. Because it's really the people that make the city. It's really the people that make the church. So everybody comes back to the city, and then you get verse 73 of chapter 7. In October, when the Israelites had settled in their towns, and all the people assembled, that's the church, it's the Hebrew word for church, right? all the people assembled with a unified purpose at the square just inside the water gate, they asked Ezra the scribe to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given for Israel to obey. And so on October 8th, or on, so there on October 8th, Ezra the priest brought the book of the law before the assembly, which included the men and women and all the children old enough to understand. And he faced the square just inside the water gate from early morning until noon and read aloud to everyone who could understand. And all the people listened closely to the book of the law, right? That is a long worship service. I know some of you go, oh, Matt's going to go an hour and four minutes today. No, this was outside in the sun. No child care with your kids. Listening to this really long message from the Old Testament, no less. The law, right? So then it says in verse 6, Then Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people chanted, Amen and Amen. And they lifted their hands and they bowed down and they worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground, right? Lifted their hands. They have needs. Raised their voices because they have affirmation. Bowed down because they're in submission. The people are starting to get it. The church is coming together. A city for the cities, a nation for the nations, a people for all peoples are coming together under the authority of God and His Word it says, then the Levites instructed the people in the law while everyone remained in their place. They read from the book of the law and clearly explained the meaning of what God had, had read to them, right? Helping the people understand each passage, right? The explanation of the Bible. That's why we do what we do here, you know? We, we try to say, and this is what it means. And so they're getting it. And as they get it, what happens? The people all began to weep as they listened, listened to the word of the law. 141 years of hardship, exile, turmoil, pain, distant from the Word. Now they're hearing the Word again, and what's it doing them? Repentance. We have sinned. We see clearly your Word. And they weep. Right? They're lifting their hands, they're raising their voices, they're bowing down. And the great thing about repentance is when you repent, you are truly free. Truly free. See, just because they've been allowed to return doesn't mean they've been free. Just because they could inhabit their rubbled out city didn't mean that they were free. They were finally free the day that Ezra reads the law, they explain it, and everybody says, we've sinned. That's when they're free. Satan hates the word repentance. He wants to keep repentance an ugly word. A 
hellfire damnation preacher word. Because he knows if people embrace repentance, they'll embrace freedom. If they resist repentance, maybe they'll use penance. Penance is not repentance. Penance is how can I torture myself? Repentance is how was Jesus tortured for me? Right? That's the difference. Once you truly repent, you're truly free, you're truly forgiving, you're truly restored, and so that's what's going on. But then this, here's what's great about this. Um, Nehemiah and Ezra and all of them, they have to kind of go, wait, stop, stop, verse 9. They said, don't mourn or weep on such a day like this, for today is the sacred day before the Lord your God. Go and celebrate with a feast of rich food and sweet drink and share gifts of food with people who have nothing prepared, right? Right? He says, don't be dejected or sad, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Right? I mean, the response is, why, right? They repent, but what Nehemiah has to say is, whoa, whoa, wait, you can't repent forever. You need to go in the joy that God has given because you are free. You are healed. You're clean. But boy, man, there is strength and joy. There's endurance and joy. There's hope and joy, confidence and joy, certainty and joy. So he says, go in the joy of the Lord. That's going to make you strong. That's going to help you to obey. That's going to help you to pray. That's going to give you passion. They have an upward focus. Finally, what Nehemiah was hungering for is what they have. Upward focus. Here's what's cool. After they go and rejoice and everything else, on October 9th, the next day, says the family leaders of all the people, together with the priests and the Levites, met with Ezra the scribe to go over the law in greater detail. So here's how this, this translates. Um, they wanted more. Uh, when they heard it, they wanted more. And it wasn't just the, the bigwigs. Every dad, every husband shows up the next day. Men, here, here's your job right here. Every one of us that's a husband, every one of us that's a father, our job is to go to the Word, to take that Word and bring it back to the family. It is not the job of Redemption Kids. It's not the job of 412. It's not the job of Revolution. You ready? It's not the job of your wife to do it more than you, men. And I know that's hard to hear for some guys. You're like, man, I've never been good at that. And I'd say, start praying, God, may I get good at that. May I get good at that? Because that is what they did. They went and they said, how can I learn more? How can I understand? How can I take it into my family? That's what I'm going to do. So that's what they do. And so they studied the law, it says in verses 14 to 16, and they realized, oh man, there's this whole festival we're supposed to do called the Feast of Tabernacles. Right? And basically what it is is you build these little tabernacles outside of your house, and the whole point is because in doing that, God will come and dwell with you in that tabernacle. So the progression went from, we're building a city, so it's just a construction project. Oh, you mean we were building a church? Didn't quite realize that, but that's what we were doing. Oh, now we're under the Word of God, and it's stimulating our hearts and minds. And from that, what do they want? They want the presence of God. Deeper things. Right? They're hungry for presence. That's what they want. So they build these tabernacles. You read the text, and they just go running around. They're grabbing sticks and leaves and palm branches. We just want God to dwell with us. And so they ask God, come and dwell. And Ezra read from the law, and everybody was filled with great joy in verses 17 and 18. Because the Word had done its work and gave them a hunger for God's presence. Man, they hadn't experienced anything like this since way back in the days of Joshua, when they first went into the Promised Land. So it's a powerful season. And as they go back to read the law again, what they do is they go through their whole history. 
Right? They're like, oh, God created the universe and he created Eden and we rebelled. And then God created Israel and we rebelled. And God set us in the land and we rebelled. And God keeps taking us back and keeps taking us back. And he is faithful even when we are faithless. So then you get to Nehemiah chapter 9. They say, in view of all of this, we are making a solemn promise and putting it in writing, right? And sealing the document. We're promising a certain thing. Going to chapter 10, it sees the completion of that promise. And the promise is they say, you know what? We're going to follow you at all costs. We want to be a people that say the word wins. The glory of God wins. The gospel wins. And we want that at all costs. And so Nehemiah has seen what he's longed for. A nation hungry for God. A people hungry for God. A city hungry for God. And so the church basically is established. Now is that going to be nothing but easy days ahead? No. Even for all of that, there are challenges. And when you get to the end of the book of Nehemiah, you start to see the three pretty common threats to the church start to creep in. The first threat he faces is the drift toward the loss of purity. Right? Drift toward the loss of purity is where one of the priests decided, you know what, I've got this relative, he could use some space at the temple, I'll free up some space so we can live in it. Oddly enough, it was repeat. Still buy it. Right? So, time's passed. Tobias, he's, yeah, you know, I want to be friendly now. I know I give you guys a lot of grief, but can I live at the temple? Eh, sure. Loss of purity. So, Nehemiah says, when I arrived back from Jerusalem, I learned about what had happened, this evil thing, by providing Tobiah with a room for the courtyard of the temple of God. So, I became very upset, and I threw out all of his belongings. I love it. Evicted. Right? That's what he does. And then I demanded the room be purified. Give me some Febreze. He smells. He's sinful. We're going to bleach his mother down. That's what we're going to do. And then he brought back the articles of God's temple, the grain offerings and the frankincense. He's like, no, no, no. This is for God. Not some dude that could crash in his pad in the city that was God's thing. No. And he kicks him out. He says, I'm all about purity. I'm all, we're not even going to joke around with this issue of purity. So he has to take a strong stand and remind the church is meant to be pure. That's part of its difference. He also has to face the drift toward the love of money. It says in verse 10, I also discovered that the Levites had not been given their prescribed portions of food, and, they, and all the singers then had to go and pick up jobs. They had to go bivocational. They couldn't just serve God in what they were meant to. And then other people started working on the Sabbath and selling on the Sabbath and creating a market system on the Sabbath. I mean, all of that is basically a love of money. People didn't want to tithe because they loved their money more than they loved their God, so they keep their money instead of giving it to their God. That's idolatry in some ways, but mostly it's a love of money. Or they love money so much that they didn't care about their schedules, so they stopped giving God his day. We're going to keep the Sabbath day for us so we can make some more money. Do our own thing. Acquire our own future, whatever it was. And so Nehemiah sees this, and he says, man, immediately I confronted the leaders and demanded, why has the temple of God been neglected? And he goes to everybody that's working on the Sabbath, and he says, you know what? Cut it out. This is the fact that I can solve this, lock the doors at sundown on the Sabbath, and don't unlock them until it's time the next day. He just goes all out. He says, I'm not going to put up with a love of money over a love of God, as much as I'm not going to put up with a love of impurity over a love of God. Then the third and final thing he deals with is the drift toward idolatry. 
support idolatry. And understand this. Let me let me give you a little bit of a quick context. It's a Christmas lesson. Um, Saint Nicholas was one of the best saints in the history of the church. He was a guy that grew up on the docks, was one of the few uh, bishops of his era that didn't have special schooling. He just became a pastor because he was a good guy, loved to give gifts to a lot of children, but another thing he was known for is beating the tar out of people that disagreed with him biblically. So when you think of Santa Claus, he gives gifts to kids, work the docks, and beat up heretics. That's what St. Nicholas did, right? This is why we love St. Nicholas, all right? He's my patron saint. Okay, so, um, and I think St. Nicholas takes his cues from Nehemiah. Here's why, all right? He sees there's this drift toward idolatry. About the same time, I realized that some of the men of Judah had married women, women from Ashdod and Amnon and Moab. Further, is as their children, man, they, they, they spoke their languages more than they spoke the language of Judah. Right? So this is just going to be idolatry. So verse 25, so I confronted them, called down curses on them, I beat some of them and pulled out their hair. Right? <laughs> Nehemiah is awesome. Right? He is a stud. Now get this, he's a eunuch, but he's a eunuch with something. Um, he's a stud. He's a stud. He just beats people up. Right? Beats them up for idolatry. And then he says, I made them swear in the name of God that they would not let this happen. They'd not marry up their kids. This is how Solomon blew it. He drifted away from God to idols because of his wives. And so he says, you know, stop it. We went into exile. We were smacked by God for our love of impurity, our love of money, our love of idolatry. And so he stomps out all three. But then here's what he wants to be remembered for. Verse 30, so I purged out everything foreign and assigned tasks to the priests and the Levites, making certain that they knew their work. I also made sure that the supply of wood for the altar and the first portions of the harvest were brought at the proper time. Remember this in my favor, oh my God. This is why I go back to the beginning. What was his heart? Was it building a wall? No, it was building a church. And the very last thing he writes about is God... I, I did what you put in my heart. I built a church with a group of people that worshipped you. I've protected it and preserved it for purity for your purposes. Nehemiah does exactly what years later Jesus came to do. When Jesus came, what did he say he was going to do? He said, I will build my church. Nehemiah is a mirror of Jesus. Right? So just as Nehemiah said, I will give up my comfort, I will give up my security, I will choose pain to start a church, that is just in a small way what Jesus came and did where he says, I'm giving up my throne, I'm giving up heaven, I will take on humanity, and I will choose pain to build my church. But it is a powerful church that Jesus promised to build. Did you know that's the only thing Jesus promised to build? He didn't promise to build anything else but the church. It's his church. It is the one thing that can crash the gates of hell. It is the one thing that will endure the rise and fall of nations. It doesn't matter where, it endures. It is the one thing that carries the gospel of hope to the world. It is the one thing that Jesus himself gave his life 
before. It is the one thing that actually begins on earth, but reigns into eternity. It is the one thing that matters. So church, I say to you, live it, believe it, know it, share it, send it, express it. That is your calling. You are the church. We are the church that Jesus came to build. Go and live as the church. Let's pray together. Jesus, I thank you for this message today. I thank you. Holy Spirit, for what it is that you desire to stir in our hearts. And I pray that we have the conviction and commitment of Nehemiah. That we will pray every day, give me this heart. Every day, give me favor in the lives of people to share. Every day that we will be the church in unashamed ways, looking for opportunity, all for your glory, to share your gospel. Jesus, that is what we pray. I pray for you to convict, for you to inspire, for you to mobilize in your awesome name.